If you've heard any of the episodes of Unthinkable in 2019, you are uh, A, either sick of hearing me say this, or, or B, hopefully like more and more intrigued as you get deeper and deeper with the show and the topic we're exploring. But we kind of put a mountain peak on our radar that's really far away in the distance. And we've picked up our machetes and we're like hacking through this jungle that stands between us and the mountain peak. And we have no idea how to get there, but we're trying. The mountain peak is how to make creativity, innovation, whatever you want to call this, your own work as a creator, your team's work, if the innovation is across the company, uh, how to make that consistent instead of what usually happens is like we scream innovate and then we pull a random stunt and we have to like jump in a room to brainstorm and like save ourselves in a last ditch effort. Like creativity has become a substitute for the real work instead of the actual real work. And the skill that we believe we need, the thing we're trying to understand to get there to reach that mountain peak is to master the art of reinvention. And uh, so Tally, we talked about this story that we found probably more than any other story that we've worked on together this year. And I think we believed it would teach us one thing and it actually led to something else. Yeah, we were talking about the story being one about scaling something globally and specifically how to give audiences a similar experience wherever your creation exists all over the world. Because the story we're about to tell is one that started in one place and has expanded to become a global institution. You know, I live in New York. My sister lives in London. If I want to go do this thing in New York and then go do it in London with her, I expect a similar experience. Right, right. So it's, you know, the business model of the company we're profiling today and the person we're talking to, the founder of this company, it lends itself to the theme because it's like, all right, how do we make creativity and innovation consistent? Well, how does this business do that? Considering they started in one city, then went to more and more and more. We thought it was about the consistency part, like putting something on the map in one location and you being physically present, or if you're not a geolocated company, you doing the work and focusing on it as an individual all that seems easy enough. But when you scale it, in other words, you move to different locations or you hire a team or you work with more teams or you work with clients, like as you start to involve these very overt and difficult to navigate variables, how do you consistently reinvent, consistently get creative, add new innovations? So that's what we thought this story would teach us. And I would say there's certainly elements of that that are inextricably linked to this story today. But the hidden truth that I think actually came out through you telling a great story, Tally, and also through just us kicking it around and gnawing at it a ton, um, the hidden truth is something else. Yeah. When you think of someone reinventing an industry or reinventing anything, it seems like this huge stunt. We talk about stunts a lot, how it feels like you're pulling off one big thing and that's it. But sometimes if you really look at what they've done and the nuances of it, it's more like a wrinkle on the surface of that in industry. So this wrinkle on the fabric of an institution that already exists is usually a lot smaller or a lot more intuitive than we give it credit for. Right. I think if we look at some of these things that do blow our minds and feel like, wow, thank goodness somebody thought of that. That's what was missing. If we really look at what it was, it was, it was there in front of us. The pieces were there. Somebody just put them together. 
So one of my favorite quotes about innovation is from Ev Williams, who founded, he's now the CEO of Medium and a VC himself, but he founded Blogger and Twitter uh, and now Medium. So he knows a thing or two about building innovative companies. Um, he says that innovation is simply removing steps. So like he uses like Uber as an example. So you line up all the steps it takes to hail a cab. It's like you walk to the curb, you stretch out your arm, you flag down a cab, you sit in the cab and you pay. There's like five steps, right? Uber slowly removed a lot of those steps, like shockingly important and innovative. So you don't have to walk to the curb anymore. They'll come to you if you're like around the corner or whatever. Uh, You do still have to sit in the car. Although eventually if any company is going to create like uh, teleportation software and, and technology is probably gonna be Uber, right? Cause that's the last step. They haven't removed the sitting in the car. Uh, you don't have to pay. Like there's all these things that happen that, that are removed rather. And that's innovative. That's innovation. So those are wrinkles on the status quo. And I think this story today, more than most we've told on the outside looking in looks like a smash hit because it is a globally successful business right now. There's a lot of milestones they've hit. And when you hear what they do, you're like, that's awesome. But it's all about the little wrinkles. And I think what's important to remember is when we think of innovation, sometimes you think about this person found out what was going wrong and fixed it. But they also really pay attention to what is going right and make sure that that's still included. So how do you identify the things that need to change? How do you figure out exactly what wrinkle you can create in that existing fabric and then scale it? It's magical. It's intimate. It's moving. It's unthinkable. Stories of conventional thinking at work and the people who dare to question it. I'm Jay Akunzo. And for this episode, a story by unthinkable producer, Tally Gabriel. I see live music about twice a week. I know that probably sounds insane and unbelievable, but I really do. Part of this is because I'm a musician and a lot of my friends are musicians, so I want to support them. But mostly I do this because seeing live music is one of my favorite things to do on the planet. If I'm having a great day or a terrible day or I'm just bored and need to get out of my apartment, I seek out live music. Sometimes, sometimes... I go to a music venue or bar and have a truly magical experience. The crowd is present and listening, I can see the artists, and I get a cathartic connection to feeling the vibrations of the bass and seeing the emotion in the artists' faces as they play. This is pretty common for anything we experience repeatedly, right? For me, it's music twice or more per week. For you, maybe it's a really excellent meal at a favorite restaurant. For your company's customers, maybe it's your brand's software updates or nuggets that really hit home in your newsletter. When we experience something a ton, we get these truly magical moments every so often. But then there are the moments in between. Okay, so take me going to see live music. In between those magical experiences, it mostly feels like a lot of pushing my way through a crowd of much taller people to try to get close to the stage, or trying to really hear the songs over the bar conversations and often badly mixed audio. While traditional live music experiences can be absolutely exhilarating and incredible, they can also be frustrating, messy, and expensive. What if there's another way? What if there's a way to provide more magical moments to our audience? to shrink the time in between those experiences so others experience them more often. 
In the case of the music I see, what if I experienced more shows that were intimate, engaging, full of respectful audiences and wonderful bands? And once you've reinvented something like the music-going experience, how do you ensure that this community builds and grows and that the experience is recognizably exciting in any one of your, say, 400-plus global outlets? Meet Rafe Offer. He's from Brooklyn, he loves live music, and he decided to change the way we experience live music through something called So Far Sounds. So Far is a series of pop-up, secret uh, gigs that are in non-traditional spaces like a house or a church basement or even the top of a ski jump and wait really that was one (laughs) yeah yeah, we did one in oslo they they weren't using it in the summer and the government said we've got a ski jump and we can probably fit about 50 60 people you want to have a gig there that's incredible (laughs) we said sure yeah so it's a yeah it's a gig and it's a listening room because people come prepared to focus on the music. They put their phones down. Technology is part of it, but not the main focus. It's about hearing and discovering new music. We don't announce who's playing as a way to expose people to usually three new acts. So what was missing from music experiences that you wanted to change by creating so far? Yeah. So what was missing was a consistently respectful audience and vibe. When I was going to gigs and thinking about this idea with a couple friends, we were shocked by how consistently people were talking and texting and how consistently the bars were open. And that experience that we were craving, where you could actually hear the music and where there were no other distractions, was missing. And we just wanted people to be in the zone, in the mood, in the mindset of taking something in. And so you have, so far it's in 429 cities now, right? Yeah, apparently. (laughs) That's pretty incredible. So how do you ensure that the general experience of a So Far Sounds show is sort of the same across the board? I mean, it's going to be different. It's going to be different artists, different venues. But what are some of these staple framework ideas that you are able to keep consistently through all of these cities? And how do you do that? That's a great question. First, people are respectful. And by respectful, I mean they are focused on listening. And that is something wherever we are that is maintained and set often by the MC. So they'll get up and say why we're here and lead the way and say, hey, this is about being in the moment. And if people are doing that gratuitous talking on the side, there will be a little bit of encouragement to stop talking and Mm -hmm. just be in the moment. So first it's, it's the listening. Second, it's always three. And you know, it may be four if somebody pops up who's a surprise, but three is our number. The next one is we encourage diversity, both in making sure that we're completely inclusive, that anybody who wants to come can come. And then secondly, there's diversity of the music. So you could get a classical performance, which we did the other day with two violinists, followed by hip hop, followed by spoken word, 
folk, you name the genre, as long as it fits in an environment that is usually, which is the next thing, somewhere between 50 and 100 people, so it stays intimate, those are some of the, the guidelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of that, almost all of them are bring your own drinks. We do that to keep the cost down, as well as make it feel a little bit more like a picnic and a little more communal. And also, to be honest, people don't drink as much when mm. they bring their own because it's finished. We found that when people drink, it's great, but they end up talking and being a bit disruptive. And so it's a little on the encouragement of just bring, have a bit, but don't overdo it. Though he didn't phrase it this way, in my eyes, Rafe totally reinvented the music industry. And that's so significant. But revolutionizing any industry, any concept, doesn't happen easily. Rafe and his team had to deal with plenty of snags along the way. There was room for so much error. What if no one came? What if the music was subpar? What if people weren't into the rules? To top it off, it's kind of crazy to look at something that's technically successful, the traditional concert scene totally still works, Madison Square Garden sells out, even crowded loud concerts at bars draw people, and say, you know what? I can do better. And it gets even more complicated. Even if someone admits that something seems better, it's hard to actually implement it. Think about, say, switching up your diet to include healthier food. If your doctor or your friend or, hell, even the internet tells you that oat milk is better than whole milk, it's super easy to say, okay, great, I'll switch to that. Why wouldn't I want to be better to my body? But the reality is often much trickier. You like the taste of whole milk already. Oat milk is more expensive. You decide maybe the next time you go grocery shopping, you'll try it out. But how bad can one more round of the stuff you're used to really be? Okay, so food is just one little example, but the point is, it's easy to convince people mentally that change is necessary, and it's a lot harder to convince them emotionally. It's hard to convince people to switch up a habit that works for them, that they feel safe with, and that they just enjoy. So how do you get people to act, to actually go to a so far show and take a risk on something that's a similar experience, but a stranger one? It's important to remember that why I felt like so far reinvented the music industry So far, shows are more of a wrinkle on the bar music scene. Similar elements are still there. Music, alcohol, even if it's BYOB. And you probably go with some friends or a date. The new elements Rafe introduced are the secrecy. Still potentially risky, but hey, there are three acts, so you'll probably enjoy at least one of them. And the intimacy and musical respect that is definitely missing from many other small venues. If you listen to our recent episode about Museum Hack, you heard Jay and I talk about this concept of chezelig, which is this Dutch word that means the cozy, warm feeling you have sharing unplanned bliss with other people. It's my favorite word. It's my favorite thing in life and in the world. It fuels pretty much everything I do. And to me, this is the element that so far was trying to bring to the music industry. Anyway, when we think of something as being innovative, we often expect that change was fast and big. In reality, it often isn't. Allowing these smaller changes to grab hold and grow over time is key for this intellectual versus emotional paradox of new experiences. As Rafe found out, it's also probably going to take a lot of messy and uncomfortable trial and error. What process did you have to come up with these guidelines? Like, what did you try that maybe really just totally didn't work? So much. When we started, it was a more of a pass the guitar vibe at the very beginning. And the problem with that was 
you would get people who you know loved playing but may not be as as talented as we wanted or may not be the kind of act that could captivate a room and today and as we graduated from that we got into having a review process we got into having a sense where people vote behind the scenes whether that act that band is right for so far so travel and hour is going from hey anyone want to play to pre-setting three acts another trial and error was that at the beginning the acts were all the same it was you know three guitarists one after the other and maybe they were all men and maybe that all got a bit samey so that was a second graduation around diversity another one was around the size of the room and when we went over 100 and say 125 it started to feel less connected when we went under 50 it started to feel too small to feel like a happening and a thing but really drilling deep into anyone's welcome and it's a better room when there's teenagers there and people of all ages and all ethnicities and it just adds every sort of communal vibe and a little bit more magic and buzz were you ever was there ever time when you wondered if it would work if this would take off and become the big community experience you hoped it would become all the time and i and i actually never envisioned it would be a big community experience i think in the beginning it was just me and my friends and we thought we'd do this maybe for a couple months so it was not until about we six seven months when we started to think this could be interesting and it wasn't until we got in another city when we thought that actually it might be a global problem and a global community so it was more based on having more people come than we anticipated more people showing up <laughs> lines down the block which there was on their fourth one wow in, in just the fourth one there were lines down the block yeah how did you get the word out in those early days it was totally word of mouth that's it and, and in fact we didn't start doing any advertising at all until nine years in it's always been people go like you know like yourself and just say hey this was pretty good and they share it and at the very beginning people would just share it and actually not not want to share with too many people because we were so oversubscribed which we kind of are that they kind of did want to but didn't want to tell anybody if that makes sense yeah sure what did it look like when you decided you had to start advertising or you you wanted to start advertising what sparked that decision i think just trying to do right by the artists and that is we now are lucky we have a line of artists who are really interested. I mean, a lot of people want to come and play and we're lucky. And I think that we just want to have more opportunities for them to play. So there was only so far that word of mouth could take you. And so advertising was like, can we get more folks in? And then when we decided it's a business, you know, you got to think of it as can you do that advertising carefully, but can you spread the word and can you grow it? Would you tell me about some big risks you've taken building so far that did and that really didn't work out? Sure. The biggest risk is empowerment of a global community. So I haven't met most of the leaders in person. I certainly hadn't for a long time. And you're sitting with them on Skype or Zoom and you're talking to them about what is your baby and your not really knowing them more than spending an hour with them and then from time to time checking in and maybe sending some emails 
and they're in another city and many times it's in another language and it's halfway across the world and you're just saying go forth and do something beautiful what hasn't worked as well let's see i would say losing the reins of being very vigilant about the quality i think that we just ask people to make sure that it blows you away at least some of the music or at least you're excited that you're going to hear such and such musician or band in a small space and i think by empowering people too much there got to be a point where they would put on their friends or the band they were managing and then we had to decide we needed a review committee globally so we could empower but not to the point where you could just willy-nilly put on whoever you wanted the cocktail of reviewers is essential so there could be somebody which there is 14 years old on the review committee and there could be somebody 50 something the majority are in their 20s i would say but having a diversity of listeners and saying five of you think that that music is pretty cool then it's probably pretty cool some have criticized that so far doesn't give enough of its profits to its artists so far sounds tickets cost $20 a pop or $10 if you pay for a monthly membership and the 50 or 60 person shows that happen multiple times a night in 400 plus cities usually sell out. The So Far Sound staff is made up mostly of volunteers, and currently artists are paid a flat rate of $100 for performing. I've played gigs for $100 or less before, and often that amount of money feels great. Hell, it feels great to make any money playing music. But the system is not without its scrutiny. The current music industry is exciting in many ways because artists can be on Spotify and iTunes and Amazon Music without needing to sign with a major label. But it's a lot, lot harder to make money as an artist. A major benefit that so far gives artists is exposure. People who might never have heard of that musician or band before are given access to them and hopefully will follow their career and share it with friends. But at the end of the day, it's still hard to make money playing original music. According to Rafe, a change is in the works. The company recently announced that they've been backed by some big VC money and that it's going to go towards helping support the artists. As of this story, which I'm reporting in late July of 2019, those changes haven't been made quite yet. But talk of them is great news for plenty of artists. Leveling up the benefits they're able to offer artists is so far's next big step. A lot of what we're going to do over the next few years is build around the so far experience in the living room with content. And so we want to ensure that all the artists who play have a chance to get heard and that our, our videos, our, our digital platforms, all that is next level up from where it is today. It's pretty good, but not great today. We got a long way to go. And I would say that we have a lot to learn because our vibe has always been creating a live music experience. So I want to make sure that the digital platforms, the online experience help make music matter and make all those folks be heard, but in a way with more expertise. Making major waves in any industry is rarely just a one and done situation. It takes plenty of finessing and asking yourself over and over again what's working and what isn't landing so well. After that first initial risk, that jump into unknown waters, you're hardly off the hook. As you start to take more and more risks along the way, you start to get a little bit better sense of what works and why. So Far Sounds just celebrated its 10-year anniversary. 10 years is an exciting milestone for any company, but it seems especially impressive for a passion project born in a living room that rose to global popularity. The idea of this kind of exponential growth sounds almost overwhelming to me. 
The first step in changing your industry, as I learned from Rafe, is being able to point out what is wrong in the first place. In Sofar's case, it was all of the ways that seeing live music can be frustrating, tricky, or just not quite magical. Sofar reinvented the concert experience in a really big way from the beginning. And now that you're 10 years established, what do you do to change and reinvent Sofar as you grow? Yeah, totally. So the first thing is trying to obsess over encouraging artists to perform in different areas of their city and in different cities as they travel. And what that does is it brings a sense of the world into that living room. So we've had nights uh, here, for example, in London, where we've had an act from Buenos Aires play and sing in Spanish, followed by maybe a hip hop act from Chicago who happened to be traveling through, followed by a local act. And that adds so much discovery to the room that it keeps it really fresh. And as we've scaled and done more of them, there's just more of that happening. So people are traveling, they're thinking of us. The recent investment round we did was going to help invest in more technology so it gets easier for acts to think about us and tour and travel around the world. And that will keep that going. Another one was just continuing on with the secret gig sense of it. So you're still surprised. And do you think that will ever lose its charm or is that pretty essential to the magic of so far? I think we we need to mix it up from time to time. So we will definitely think about experimenting with announcing who's playing from time to time or announcing the genre. Hmm. For example, we had all spoken word in Bushwick not long ago. People knew. (laughs) That's so Bushwick. (laughs) That's great. So people knew that that's what they were getting. And that, I guess, added a little bit of a curveball. So I know some other companies like Airbnb are hosting in-home concert series, sort of similar to so far. So as that happens, are you conscious or concerned at all of like what happens if this becomes the new concert going norm? What happens if people start to really seek out these intimate concerts in a variety of companies and how do you stay constantly ahead of the curve if that happens? Generally, my comment is we've got such a long way to go ourselves and everyone trying to do more intimate experiences that I welcome competition. I welcome uh, other people doing it. Airbnb, we had worked with them for a little while then they decided they were going to do it themselves. They copied some of what we were doing but, you know, I can learn from them. We can learn from them. So I'm all for them and other people trying in this space because there's just not enough and the artists who perform in any form of intimate space house concert non-traditional concert they benefit if they get a quiet audience or they get paid a bit more money or they get a bit more promotion or all the above so first of all generally a really good thing in terms of staying I guess, fresh and vital and a bit ahead of everything. It's best to obsess over what we do and challenge ourselves to innovate, challenge ourselves to blow up our own model from time to time, to try new things and learn from what's happening in the world. So that was one of many examples. I just spoke to somebody who's doing a series of large-scale meditation sessions. And so, you know, why not bring in meditation to so far? It may not even be one of the acts. It just might be in between the breaks. So add new stuff, play with it, 
and then also focus a bit more on the audience. So we've had more than 15 people meet it so far and end up getting married. What? That's amazing. Crazy, huh? Yeah. And we have it on on film, on you know, on, on tape, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it. Uh, so people have proposed as well, and so far, wow. who have, have met as a lovely thing. And so, what about the audience? How can we have more people meet people? Can you have singles nights? Can you make that community even richer? And that also, to answer your questions, it's the kind of thing that makes it more interesting. How do you? encourage people to meet and talk to each other at a so far show because I know sometimes you know it, people can be shy it's awkward to go to something especially if you're alone and just try talking to people the MC helps a lot they'll have the people who are kind of working the show try to connect the dots I remember there was one time where someone was on a Twitter date not a Twitter date a well what it could have been a, a Tinder date, date. Tinder date yeah you can see how often I use Tinder <laughs> Not at all. It was a Tinder date, and the Tinder date didn't show up. And then 20 minutes later, there was another Tinder date who didn't show up. They were the opposite sex. And the leader of the night connected them and said, you both might want to sit together. And they went out arm in arm, apparently. Uh, And some of it was just incurring light banter between neighbors. I understand that uh, building community is a big part of the so far experience. Is that correct? Yeah. How do you ensure that a, you can build a community that will last when the concert is over? Or are you not sure that that can happen yet? The community we know we're building is of the organizers and their ambassadors or volunteers who are doing this like I did mm-hmm. for fun, uh, but very light touch. And they're all discussing the next event. And they're all talking about, hey, when you're in L.A., look up the local chapter leader that's happening and there's about 3,000 people like that then the next layer uh, complimentary that are the artists 30,000 artists have performed so far and many of them collaborate and many of them get to meet each other and crash and couch surf in terms of the people who actually come we don't you know have a specific orchestrated strategy it's all happened organically, and I think that we'd be up for any new ideas as we grow, but we never thought of it as a community of everybody at the same time, but that's sort of naturally what's happened. When you've built a brand on experiencing those rare exceptions to the rule, the magical moments, it's hard to provide the thing that was missing all the time consistently. Ultimately, there's no way you can do it alone. You need a strong team, and building this team, this community, becomes as important as the thing you're making in the first place. Music feels like a special case to creating magical experiences because it's so ingrained in our humanness. According to most historians, we've been making music since pretty much ever, banging rocks and sticks together and chanting as Neanderthals. And of course, more musical styles were invented and explored, and before we knew it, college guys were picking up guitars to play Wonderwall at house parties. But in all seriousness, we still use music as a way to connect with other humans. Whether it's a wedding song, a jukebox picks, or a playlist carefully crafted for a crush, we put a lot of thought into sharing music with one another. So how do you know that people love their so far experience? Other than the fact that tickets are being sold, how do you gather audience feedback and what do you do with it? We use NPS, Net Promoter Score. We ask 
many thousands every month about their experience. And uh, for those people who keep track of such things, our, our NPS is around 80, which I'm told is, is, is very, very good. Yeah, it's great. Uh, but we also obsess over what we're not doing well. So we read all the commentary through that and through Zendesk. And we're looking at feedback all the time. And then the people running the events are watching with their eyes and listening and talking to people. So there is a whole uh, team, people who are listening digitally, manually. Rafe is no stranger to global companies. He comes from a marketing background and worked at Disney, Coca-Cola, and the beer and spirits producer Diageo before being able to turn so far into his full-time job. I learned quite a bit from working for Walt Disney and Coca-Cola and uh, Diageo, a drinks company, about putting together a global organization and uh, obsessing over marketing and the details. Especially with Disney, they create a, a... they use the same word, magical experience that a lot of people copy because it's inspiring. And they're very, very obsessive about the details. And I think I learned a lot from those three companies in different ways. One of the things I learned quite a bit at Coke was, you know, marketing is basically just ensuring that something's consistent uh, against what you want. And whether it's trying a product or experiencing it, social media allows you to enforce and reinforce that consistency. Rafe took note of what wasn't working in the traditional live music experience for him and his friends, and imagined things like loud bars and too crowded dance floors might bug a lot of other people too. He was right. He had the global marketing experience to back his instinct, but ultimately it came down to following his gut and deciding to make the change he wanted to see in the industry. You too can take note of when something about your industry just doesn't sit right, and think of the concrete things you can change to shift the problem. Think in terms of wrinkles, the smaller, subtle shifts that might actually make a very big difference, but won't feel like a total stunt. So some of the really magical experiences I've had have been in my house. And I try to get people together beforehand, order some pizza, have a bit of whiskey, you know, whatever it takes. And then just, it becomes magical when things are unexpected happen. And at the last one, there was an act who had come in on the train from Manchester and he had grown up quite poor and wanted to find his way through culture out of his difficult upbringing. And he had been inspired about seven years ago when he watched The Voice. And there was this insanely talented neo-soul singer named Jazz Ellington, who uh, this guy whose name is Roosevelt had had watched and it had inspired him and that actually helped him get on the path of a music career and of which he's doing really really well and then he gets to so far and unbeknownst to him because the act it's all secret unbeknownst to him one of the acts in the room was this guy jazz ellington oh wow and it was a supremely emotional moment when he looked up and unexpectedly saw his inspiration in the room on the same bill in my living room as he was. When we want to change anything about our industry, rarely are we setting out to try and reinvent something. More likely, we notice a problem that we think we can solve and go about solving it by putting little wrinkles in motion that might seem like a radical change, but are really little shifts in a system that works well enough for a reason. 
Sometimes the smallest wrinkles are all it takes to create those magic moments that you and your audience are searching for. Unthinkable is me, Tally Gabriel, and Jay Akunzo. Thank you to Rafe Offer and the entire So Far Sounds team for providing us with those magical moments and providing me with this story that I thoroughly loved to produce. Unthinkable is going through some pretty exciting changes soon, and Jay and I are working on exploring a whole host of new ideas about how to keep things consistently creative. So stick with us and check out what's next.